Like you said, my name is Mick Murray. I'm the uh, teaching pastor on staff at Antioch in Waco, and I uh, do have my family here, so happy Father's Day again to all the dads. Uh, if I would have known that we were going to have the kiddos in the service today, I would have prepared a little differently, a few extra stories. Uh, so I've, I've got one Father's Day joke. You guys want to hear it? All right, this is for the kids uh, and the adults. But for the kids, what do you call a cow with no legs? Yes. Ground beef. Nailed it. Way to go. Hey, give him a hand. Give him a hand. Uh, round of applause there. But for Father's Day, uh, our family prepared a Father's Day dance for you. So my family's going to come up to the stage now. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Some of you were looking for the exits, including my children just then. Uh, they prayed for me before the service today. One of my kids prayed two things. Uh, God, help my dad not to puke on stage uh, for nerve because he's nervous, which I'm not particularly nervous, but I appreciate that prayer. And the second was uh, they prayed that we, I wouldn't embarrass them. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but I do have a picture of my family, though they are sitting up here uh, on the front row. Uh, love my family and my wife, Steph, of going on 18 years. I know it's like minuscule for those of you towards the back there, but uh, Steph, uh, my uh, better half by far. And then we have four boys, Aiden, Paxton, Mason, and Hudson. 13, 11, 10, and 8, and so we have no lack of uh, activity, energy, noise, uh, aggression, testosterone in our house. My wife is an incredible boy mom, and uh, I'm thrilled to be here with them. So you guys are in a, a series, Church in the Wild, a study on the book of Acts. And uh, what I understand is you're looking at how, as the people of God, you can be empowered by the Spirit to advance the kingdom of God and looking at the book of Acts for instruction in that regard. And I was thrilled to be invited to come and share. I love this city. Uh, I love your church. We've only been to one Sunday service uh, like six or seven years ago, but I've been down to the discipleship school uh, many times. So some of you are familiar faces from those visits. Uh, but I was a little daunted by the topic that I was given. Uh, next to the, the passage in the email, I was to speak on kingdom justice. And I don't know about you, but justice that word can evoke a lot of different thoughts in different people's minds. We might be talking about racial inequalities, or immigration and border control, or gender pay gaps, or broader income inequalities, or food insecurity, voting rights, access to affordable health care, reproductive rights, climate justice, gun violence, the opioid crisis, and the list goes on, right? The topic of justice could make some of us uncomfortable. Um, I would ask for a show of hands, but I won't. But has anybody been impacted by any one of those issues over the past four years? Right? Most of us have. And this topic can hit close to home for a lot of us. So from a speaking standpoint, it could seem a bit daunting, but I'm excited to look at what could kingdom justice look like for the body of Christ? What could we glean from the book of Acts? How can the church be involved in God's mission of, of extending his kingdom and bringing about justice in the earth. Or again, more specifically, to the point of this uh, series, how can we allow the Spirit of God to work in and through us to advance his kingdom? And who knows that part of God's kingdom is justice. Psalm 89, I believe it's verse 14, says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The very foundation of the throne of God is justice. 
So how can we participate in that justice amid the mundanity of our lives, our day-to-day -day existence? How can we be a part of God's mission to advance his kingdom, which includes justice? So I believe the text this morning sheds some light on that. Uh, I know you just sat, uh, but in Waco, what we started to do to honor the Word of God is to stand for the reading of Scripture. So if you just stand with me briefly for a moment, it's just a physical uh, act to say we honor the Word of God. We're, we are coming under its authority this morning. You don't have to read along with me, but I'm going to read out of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. You can have a seat. Give somebody a fist bump as you do. Tell them that you're glad that they are here this morning. All right, so we are going to break down this passage verse by verse, starting in verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now for those of you who were here last week, Drew Stedman spoke. He's a colleague of mine in Waco. We spent a lot of time together. And I know that he talked about the latter part of chapter 5, where because of the disciples' obedience, it led to suffering. They were put in prison. They were beaten. But we see here at the beginning of chapter 6 what their obedience and their suffering led to. It says that the, that the number of the disciples, the followers of Jesus, was increasing. Right? That should be an encouragement for those of us who have experienced suffering and persecution in some form or fashion and have remained obedient to Jesus. The aroma of Christ gets uh, spread through our lives and says the number of the disciples was increasing as a result. But we know that through growth comes problems. Right? Growth in the church is a problem. Did you guys know that? Why is it a problem? What does growth mean? Growth means we're adding people. What do people bring with them? Problems, right? I don't know about you. I have plenty of problems. You bring enough people into one community, and you have all their collective issues together. Now, hopefully under the lordship of Jesus, but we see right off the bat that as the church is growing, now we're experiencing some internal friction here, some problems. Specifically, it says that there uh, the Hellenists were complaining against the Hebrews. We'll get into that in just a moment. But have you ever been frustrated by the amount of issues inside the church? Anybody ever been um, frustrated by the fact that there are so many issues outside the church that could occupy our emotional bandwidth? And then the church is to be the body of Christ, the aroma of Christ, a portrait of the gospel to the world, and yet there's so much brokenness inside of the church. And that's what we see 
is happening here in the book of Acts. This is an ancient problem. It's not that issues in the church is a new phenomenon. Right here at the birth of the church, we have these challenges. And for some context, some of these words may not be familiar to us. What is a Hellenist? Uh, what are we we're talking about? We talk about the Hebrews. There's a, um, uh, uh, there's friction between these two groups of disciples of Jesus. So for some context, in the 4th century B.C., anybody heard of Alexander the Great? Any kiddos heard of Alexander the Great, right? So he conquered the, Pers uh, the Persian Empire, and he spread the Greek Empire all over the Mediterranean Basin, out into what's modern-day Iran, all the way down into modern-day Libya. Now, he didn't have any sons, and his kingdom passed to his generals, and they didn't know how they were going to continue the reign of kind of this Greek influence, and so they took a page out of Alexander's playbook, and instead of just ruling by military might, they decided to assimilate all of these native cultures into Greek culture. So they, they built these community houses, gymnasiums, where they would educate the kids with the Greek language and Greek uh, pagan worship. Now, around the same time, there was a diaspora, a dispersion of the Jews. And I've got a map of that. Again, it'll be microscopic for those of you towards the back. Towards the back. But there is a map that shows this movement of the Jews from Jerusalem and Palestine all over uh, the Greek world at that time. And these Jews settled in cities as far west as Cyrene in modern-day Libya, as far as uh, central Iran today, up into Macedonia. And they developed Jewish communities in these Greek cities, but they became very Greek in their culture. Now, around this time, some of those Jews had immigrated back to Jerusalem, and they're now living in Jerusalem, but they speak Greek, and they live Greek culture. Greek culture was organized around the polis, around community involvement. And again, there were different customs, different foods, and so on. Meanwhile, you had the Hebrews who were all, uh, these were all ethnically Jewish people, but these Jews had stayed in Jerusalem. They spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. Their cultural life revolved around the family, around the synagogue, around memorizing Torah, around prayers, around the festivals and the feasts that were commanded in the Jewish texts. And so you have these two very different, culturally different groups of people that have now become followers of Jesus, living in the city, part of the church, and we see that there was a daily distribution of food and alms to the widows in Jerusalem. And the minority uh, cultural group is being overlooked by the majority who had the authority. Does this sound familiar to maybe some of our modern day issues? And so this complaint is arising. All Christians, all part of the church, but the, the Hellenists, the Greek speakers, are saying that the Hebrew speakers are overlooking our widows. And this comes before the leaders of the church, the apostles. All right, now we don't know the motives of what's going on here, why there was uh, a group that was being overlooked. We don't even know if it was a legitimate claim. The point is that there was a dispute at the church. There was a rift forming. And remember Jesus' commission to the disciples. Anybody remember what his commission to the disciples was? Go make disciples of all the nations. And then in Acts chapter 1, at the very beginning of this series, he says, Go, therefore, into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, I heard one pastor suggest that the greatest hindrance to the gospel spreading to all of the earth is not a lack of funds. It's not a fear of physical safety. It's actually ethnocentrism or racism. And might pause, uh, cause you to pause, but... 
I think there's uh, some legitimacy to that suggestion. If you look in the lives of the disciples as they followed Jesus around, uh, there was tension consistently throughout the Gospels with the Samaritans, these neighbors that were only partially Jewish, but very different uh, ethnically and certainly very different religiously. You see in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, you see in Luke 9, where the disciples want to call down fire on a city of, uh, of Samaria because they wouldn't let Jesus pass through. Or in Luke 10, when Jesus shocks his listeners that the hero of the story is the good Samaritan, right? Now, Jesus' mission here in Acts chapter 1 is to go into all the world, including Samaria, who the Jews hated, including all of these other places around the Greco-Roman kingdom into the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, how much time do you think had elapsed? Because you see in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes at Pentecost. The disciples are filled with the Spirit. They begin preaching the gospel in all these different languages. People are there for the feast from all these different nations. And it seems like there's this spark right off the bat, and the gospel is going to go into all the nations in the first year of the birth of the church. So this happens in Acts chapter 2. But how much time do you think has elapsed between that moment in Acts 2, and now in Acts chapter 6, when you have this dissension among the church in Jerusalem, the gospel has yet to uh, significantly leave Jerusalem. That'll happen in Acts chapter 8. How much time do you think has elapsed, though, between Jesus' commission and this moment? Any takers? Anybody want to throw out a guess? Kiddos, any guesses? Twenty, thirty years? All right. Uh, we're going to give the, the church a little bit more grace than that. That's a good guess. Four years has passed. Four years. Good guess, sir. That's a long time between the, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. Jesus is commissioned to take the gospel into all the world. And here they've been kind of holed up in Jerusalem for four years. And another year or two is going to pass before the persecution and, and Stephen is martyred. And they're finally kicked out of Jerusalem and they take the gospel to Samaria. Philip does specifically. It takes pain and persecution to finally kind of light a fire into the church. Again, because it is difficult for us to love those who are different from us. This has been a human condition from the very beginning. It is difficult for us to love people who are different than us. And I think if we could answer the question, how do we love people who are different than us, we can begin to get at the root of injustice. These especially divisions among the church, let alone the injustices in the broader community. So how is the church going to deal with this? And can we take a page out of their playbook in Acts chapter 6? Well, we look at verses 2 through 4 to see how they begin to respond. Verse 2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, the church, and they said, uh, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Right off the bat, it's uh, significant to me, being in church leadership, that the church leaders gathered the church, and then they empowered them and said, choose from among yourselves who you want to empower to fix this problem. They distributed their authority. They didn't hoard, uh, hoard control and power for themselves. And they gave a, a certain set of characteristics uh, to look for among the church to empower in terms of leaders. Uh, good reputation, full of the Spirit, 
and full of wisdom. These begin, uh, become the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, and we'll come back to these qualifications in a moment. Uh, but what they're saying is these are the kind of people we need, spirit-empowered people uh, full of godly character to administrate God's justice uh, in the earth. But what we begin to see here is a delineation of kind of running lanes in the church. And I want to camp on this for just a moment because I think this is significant. Paul picks up on this in his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, possibly thinking back to this, uh, this um, example of what's going on in Jerusalem. In verse uh, 11 in Ephesians 4, it says, And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What Paul is saying here is that God has raised up um, a, a group of people, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, to to guide and govern the church, to equip the saints. And you see this in our passage in Acts 6, where the apostles are saying, hey, we don't need to give up the ministry of the word and prayer in order to serve tables. And they're not using that as a pejorative. They're talking about that very practically. We don't have time to, uh, to administrate the, the division of this food and these alms to the widows because we have a commission to equip the saints, to minister the word, to pray. And this is what Paul is saying. God has given the church worker, if you will, the commission to equip the saints to do the ministry. Wait, let me say that another way. So I work uh, for a church. I am commissioned to teach the word and to pray. Um, that makes me an equipper. I think sometimes in our vernacular, we get it flip-flopped, where we call church workers ministers. But according to this passage... You, if you don't work for the church, if you are out in the community serving tables, if you will, administering God's justice, you are the minister. Say, I'm a minister, right? I am an equipper, and this is oversimplification. We're also realtors. Uh, so we are out in the world administering God's justice. Uh, I am a, a realtor as of Friday. My wife is the realtor. She's been a realtor for a while, but I'm joining uh, forces with her. So we uh, are administering God's justice that way. But as a church worker, I am um, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. I think at times in the church in the West, we have put undue expectation and pressure on the church as an institution to deal with all the social issues in our society. I don't think that's a biblical model. I think the church as an institution, the uh, pastors, the teachers, the leaders, have been given the task to equip the saints to go out and be salt and light and to address all the social ills in our communities. Is that making sense? So think back to COVID, just however many moons ago that was now. I know in Waco, COVID lasted about six weeks. I think it was a little longer here in Austin. Um, but I know there was a lot of pressure on pastors, masks or no masks, gather or don't gather. Of course, there were all the racial tensions at that time, very real pain in our communities on the heels of George Floyd's death and so many other issues, immigration issues affect us Texans. And I know our pastors in Waco, there was so much pressure on their shoulders to address this, address that, uh, you know, uh, abortion issues and so on. And it comes to a point where the church as an institution is insufficient to address all the ills in our society. 
But I don't think biblically that's the model. I think biblically the model is we are to be faithful to equip the saints to go out and to address immigration reform and to address gun control and to address COVID issues and all the other complexities that require professionals who are spirit-filled and full of integrity and character. You guys following me? So that's what's happening here in the book of Acts in the city of Jerusalem. There's a division of labor that's happening, and they are empowering the church to address the grievances among them. All right, I, I uh, directed discipleship schools for many years, and I know that uh, participation and reflection is important in a teaching setting. So we're going to have a participation moment, and I want you to turn to somebody next to you. And so far, to this point, what's one takeaway from the text or from the message. Okay, so turn to somebody, you got one minute. What's a takeaway so far? Ready, go. Fifteen more seconds. Short, succinct thoughts, your takeaways so far. All right, kiddos, you hanging with me? You good? You guys are doing great. I have an attention span of about eight minutes, so you guys are hanging in longer than, than I would. Way to go. All right, so how'd this go? So that the apostles uh, present this as a solution. Hey, pick from among yourselves these men of good repute and so on. So how'd this fare? How did how'd this work out? We see in verses 5 and 6, it says, What they said, the apostles said, pleased the whole gathering, the church, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Proselyte just means a, uh, a Greek convert to uh, Christianity from the city of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. All right, so again, the apostles are distributing their authority. They're letting go of some control and some power, and they're allowing the, the church to choose from among themselves uh, people to administer the distribution of food, to administer justice in their community. Now, what's interesting to me is that the seven who were chosen, now remember which group was being overlooked? The Greek speakers, the Hellenists. Um, this may not jump off the page at you, but all seven men here who are chosen to oversee the food distribution now are of what uh, kind of uh, cultural uh, group, do you think? They're all Greeks. They're all Hellenists. I think that's a, a beautiful portrait of these um, Aramaic-speaking, Hebrew-speaking men to say, hey, choose from among yourself. And the community chooses people from the minority population, people who had been marginalized, people who had been overlooked. And now they have been empowered. The apostles lay hands on them, and they commission and ordain them now to serve in this capacity. I think that's a, a beautiful portrait of that um, sharing of authority and that distribution of power. They give them grace, they give them favor, and they empower them. 
You know, there are so many injustices in the world today. It doesn't take long scrolling through the news to, to become overwhelmed. So what could this look like in our lives, in our neck of the woods? How can we overcome and address the issues that we're faced with? Let's just talk about in the church, the divisions in the church, let alone all the externalities and the issues in our society. And what I'd like to pull from this passage is two main points, that we need two things in order to advance the kingdom of God in the area of justice. The first is a shared identity. And I think I'll have both of those behind me. And the second is godly character. That in the church, to address the issue of justice from the text here, we need a shared identity and we need godly character. And what I mean by a shared identity comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. You guys with me? Hang in there. We're turning a corner here. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, who's been baptized in here before? Water baptized. If you haven't, you are welcome here. I hope at some point you take that step of obedience as a follower of Jesus. He says, For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And that's the issue we have here in Acts chapter 6, isn't it? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no fa uh, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now what he's saying here is there are not these distinctions. He's not eliminating the ethnic distinctions, the gender distinctions. What he is saying is that our identity in Christ supersedes any other allegiances that we might have saying that our oneness in Jesus is more substantive even than my maleness over and against my wife's femaleness. We are unified in Christ before we unify with some other group. I am a Christian before I'm an American. I'm a Christian before I'm a member of Antioch. I'm a Christian before I vote Republican or Democrat. Paul will say it this way in Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. It says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, what we just celebrated in communion, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Does anybody need some hostility killed? Uh, today. Maybe hostility in your own home, hostility in the workplace, hostility in a life group or house church, hostility among roommates and friends. Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. So our starting point to address injustice is in our shared identity in Jesus Christ. And until that identity supersedes any other allegiance, we don't have a, a starting point. We don't have a common ground from which to address injustice, which is why I believe the secular efforts at addressing injustice are fundamentally insufficient uh, because there is not a power that supersedes those, those allegiances. I believe the church has the answers to address injustice. But the second thing is then godly character. It starts with a shared identity, but the disciples, they pick men of good reputation. That means they were full of integrity. They could be trusted. They were the same when no one was looking as when someone was looking. 
They were full of the Spirit. They recognized their own weakness and their dependency on God, and they're full of wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. These are the type of people that God is raising up to deal with the injustices in our world, uh, full of integrity, the same no matter who's looking, dependent on the Holy Spirit, and trusting in God's wisdom to deal with the issues of our age instead of our own wisdom. One example of this, have you guys had, had Dr. Hill, Clarence Hill, come down and speak here before? So you might be familiar with Dr. Clarence Hill, our pastor at Antioch in Norman. And uh, he has a great book, uh, The Dream Clock, which tells some of this story. If you haven't had a chance to pick up this book, it's fantastic. But he's an African-American man uh, who grew up, uh, his story is he grew up in a black church. And he had these kind of natural, uh, he had a natural wariness towards white people, a natural, um, you know, it's, it's, they were other than. And then later, his family went to an all-white church, and, and it kind of reshaped his world, and he's been kind of part of this process of ra racial reconciliation for many years. But he talks about, after the killing of George Floyd, his own pain and confusion and, and working through all those issues all over again. And he says that he lives in a predominantly white neighborhood, and he's been very proactive to get to know his neighbors. But one day, he left a meeting, and he drove back to his neighborhood uh, in early June of 2020. And he was just frustrated and dealing with all these uh, just internal issues and turmoil again. And he, he had this kind of thought experiment. He said, I'm not going to initiate with any of my neighbors. I want to see how legitimate their kind of friendship towards us is. And he would say maybe it wasn't the, the most well-motivated thought, but uh, he wanted to see if they were seen and noticed in this time. And he said he drove into his neighborhood, and immediately people were waving, and a couple people came up and just checked on him and asked how he was doing and his wife. And he said it was profoundly moving to be seen that way by his white neighbors. And it gave him this idea to start the Dream Clock. And this is a book now, and it's a process where he helps people, groups of people all over the nation to move towards racial reconciliation. And he has a kind of a process in here. He's working with the city council in Oklahoma City uh, towards citywide uh, racial reconciliation initiatives. Out of his own pain and his own process, his shared identity in Jesus Christ, uh, a man of integrity and character, not just a man, he and his wife were closely together in this regard, and uh, dependent on the Holy Spirit full of wisdom, relying on God's wisdom. This is used in many secular contexts, but it is uh, steeped in biblical principles. In fact, uh, anybody like a copy of this book? This one's for free. All right, you raise your hand. Come on up. That's for you. Enjoy. But an example of a follower of Jesus being salt and light in his community, he happens to be a pastor, but he also leads a nonprofit that he has for many, many years where he's been advocating uh, for justice in our, in our land. So very practically, I, I want to leave you with a few questions. You can put those up on the screen. I want to leave you with kind of four points of reflection this morning. We could talk about justice at a societal level. We could talk about justice at a church level. But I think we need to start with ourselves and point the finger inward. What can I do about justice at an individual level? Four things. Number one, I would challenge you to identify who is your them. Who is it hard for you to love within the church? Who is kind of on the other side of the aisle from you? 
actually had a gentleman come up to me after a sermon uh, not too long ago, and he asked me, he said, would you be willing to say on behalf of church leadership that all Democrats are backslidden and should be excommunicated from the church? <laughs> and his participation at our church was, uh, was hanging on my response. And I said, I am not willing to make that statement. Uh, I would, we do not uh, think that as a church, we would not take that stand. I uh, understand the issues are complex, but um, so who is your them who would be difficult to extend the, the right hand of fellowship to? Uh, secondly, meditate on the meaning of the cross. Once you've identified the them, the meaning of the cross, as we read from Galatians and Ephesians, breaking down that dividing wall, making the two one, and by extension, meditating on the sacraments, baptism and communion. Baptism, death to self, alive in Christ, that shared identity and communion, this communal table that we participate in that makes us one over and above other things that we could kind of draw our barriers around. Third, I want to challenge you to listen well and ask good questions in this hour. We uh, live in a very opinionated age, and I would challenge you Maybe you have social media as a platform, that's fine. But I would challenge you to have as many face-to-face -face conversations as you have uh, social media uh, posts and opinions. Listen and ask good questions. When the Greek speakers came to the Hebrew speakers, the Hebrew speakers listened to the complaints, and it brought about change. And then fourth, start with pointing the finger inward. There's plenty of finger pointing in our nation today, but start with pointing the finger inward with regard to integrity, dependency, and wisdom that we saw from the text today. Integrity, am I the same person when no one's looking? Dependency, do I walk with the Holy Spirit? Am I dependent on God's power to bring about change? And wisdom, whose wisdom am I leaning on, my own or the Lord's? So if you're going out to lunch, here's your, your discussion question. What one step, what one practical step can you take this week to advance God's kingdom justice, right? Feel free to evaluate how I did, how the band did, how the service was today. I know that happens. But after that, point the finger inward. What one step can I take this week, one practical step, maybe responding to one of those four points of reflection, pointing the finger inward, listening well, meditating on the cross, identifying who's my them. The final verse, verse 7, how'd this fare for them? The Word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's interesting that on the heels of external pressure and the persecution, uh, people were added to the church. But this is the first time it says the religious leaders who were doing the persecuting have come to the faith. I think it's interesting that it was not just the external pressures, but when the church dealt with the internal strife, and strove for unity, it turned the heads of even those who were persecuting them, and they came to the faith. Possibly our unity, our dealing with the injustices in our own midst is more of a powerful witness even than our perseverance in suffering. So may we be a people who lean in the wisdom of God, who walk with the Spirit of God, who walk in integrity and who find our common identity in Jesus. May we be salt and light and address the injustices in our land, in our day, in Jesus' name. You can stand with me as we wrap up together. You know, I'm not um, 
naive to the fact that there is so much that can and does divide us. But I have great hope that God is doing a work in the church in this hour of addressing the disunity, addressing the pride, addressing the brokenness in the church to raise up a body of believers who is a city on a hill, who is salt and light. And for this city, for Austin, I think this church is poised to be a reflection of Jesus, a neon flashing light of the gospel and the hope of reconciliation in Christ. And I would love to respond in that way. If you're part of the prayer team, you can come on down to the front. And just two very practical points of response. Uh, the first is pain. If you hear a message like this and there are just some internal walls that come up because you've been on the receiving end of the injustice, you've been the one overlooked in the distribution of the food, so to speak, and the, the idea of drawing near and taking that initiative and moving towards others seems like a bridge too far. We would love to pray for you just for healing, for courage, um, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's some real pain in the room, and we know that. We acknowledge that. We want to make space for prayer for that. Uh, but the second point is we'd love to also pray if this topic kind of pricks your heart and there's an activation that you feel and want to be a part of, of being a bridge builder and being a healer in our uh, communities, in our nation. We just want to put a hand on your shoulder and activate you and say, yes, we are behind you. Uh, Holy Spirit, come upon our friends, empower them to be uh, an administer of justice. And then if you need prayer for anything else, please don't hesitate. But certainly if you need healing from pain, if you want to be empowered, activated to be a healer yourself, we'd love to pray with you. But I just want to pray to bless uh, our time and then you respond as you need to. Don't hesitate to reach out for prayer. So Father, thank you for the cross. Lord, we are needy, fragile, dependent people. We confess our own participation in the brokenness of this world, and we ask, God, through us, would you advance your kingdom of justice and righteousness? Would we learn from the church of 2,000 years ago how to give up and abdicate power rightly to empower others to find our identity in Christ, to walk in your way? Would you move, Holy Spirit, even as we close our time? Would you heal hearts and activate and empower all of us to be your hands and feet in Jesus' name.